We're going to continue then in our family month series called The Uncommon Family with a very different kind of sermon this morning. I'm going to give you the title of my sermon and the formula in advance so that you know not just the ground that we're going to cover, but what I want each and every single one of us, regardless of where you are, to leave with this morning. I'm also going to forewarn you, this is not a PG-13 sermon, but it is a forward sermon. We're going to touch on subjects that we have alluded to, and we're going to put our thumb on some things that is increasingly real in the life of our church body and in the life of those around us. So I warn you of that in advance. The title of my sermon is this, Observations from the Counseling Table. And I'm going to expand on that right away to say observations and encouragements from the counseling table. Everything that we will talk about this morning related to the uncommon family and what it means is born out of not just my counseling, but the counseling ministry of those in our church that engage with you on the deepest, most real areas of life. How we're going to approach the Bible then is this. I'm going to speak to a specific subject or a specific uncommon family dynamic or to a specific uncommon family people group. My plan then is to give that group of people some very direct application, and then I'm going to broaden the scope, and there will be a piece for all of us as well. Because I I assure you, regardless of what type of family you are in, we are all one family in Christ, and we need to love and serve one another well. So our application will be tuned to that end. Why this approach? Why, Why come to the Bible this way this morning? I will say in advance... Fasten your seatbelts. There's a lot of ground that we're going to cover, so here we go. Church family, increasingly, gone are the days where the traditional family unit is the driving force of society. I have a lot of data to back such an audacious statement up. First, let me note infertility. Infertility is a growing concern on a national level. And it's so much so that UCLA has revealed that 15% of U.S. couples right now will have difficulty either conceiving or carrying a child. And this is due, by the way, to both female and male infertility. This is on the rise. Maybe something a little bit more familiar to us. 44.2% of all first marriages end in divorce. Subsequent marriages, that number skyrockets past 60%. Now, some of you might look at that number and you might say, 44.2, that's gone down, it used to be 50. Not so fast. Don't be too encouraged. Because what we know is that the national family court system remains underwater and they are dramatically behind. So we don't actually know all of the divorces. The data is not as reliable as we would like it to be. But there's more. The U.S. Census Bureau has data showing that unmarried cohabitation has dramatically risen. Less individuals are marrying at all in favor of simply remaining uh, unmarried and cohabitating instead. Recent Census Bureau data and Pew Research data, some re- it's, it's a few years old, but I like the fact that it's a few years old because it actually gives us a real number we can count on. Pandemic data is still a little all over the place. But we know from just before the pandemic that 35% of unmarried parents were simply cohabitating instead of marrying at all. Further, single-parent homes have dramatically risen as well. The U.S. The US Census Bureau revealed in 2020 that 18.5 million children live with only a single parent. A scholar from the Journal of Marriage and Family, they extrapolate that very, very soon, 
half of all children in the United States of America will live with a single parent. Half. This, this should begin to get our attention, but there's more. In 2021, the research for uh, the Step Family Foundation, research that they did drawing from the Census Bureau, they note that we can no longer count step and blended families the way that we used to. Because of the dramatic rise of unmarried cohabitation, step families now count as recoupled as well. So dramatic is the information surrounding all of this, we now have to change how we count data to reflect the reality of our cultural situation. And this is to say nothing of the causes of all of these statistics, things like infidelity, a lack of commitment, poor parenting, value systems, where these kinds of lifestyles are acceptable at all, to say nothing of verbal, physical, and emotional abuse. Folks, between 50 and 80% of adults, and this is from a 2021-2022 study, between 50 and 80% of adults say that they have experienced verbal or emotional abuse in their lifetime. Furthermore, 11% of that number are children. Bethel Church, this must get our attention because the worst part is I could keep going, but I would have no time left for the sermon. The data surrounding the degradation of society, the degradation of the modern, or excuse me, the traditional family must get our attention because if these are the national statistics related to the population, and by the way, I might add, some of the studies that I'm citing, they were done in our backyard. They were done in the greater Chicagoland area, which is why they are so startling, and they must get our attention, because if I'm going to coin or maybe draw from a popular TV show, if these stats are true and they're from our neighborhood, this is us. That means some of you in the room right now and those of you joining us online and at our other campuses, these statistics very much reflect who we are as a church. Let me say it this way to bring it back to our sermon series. The uncommon family is increasingly becoming the common family. Traditional families, we love you. We are thankful you are here. We're thankful for you. In many family months in the past, in many times, in many ways, we have spoken prior to you. But this morning, I want to speak directly to these statistics because they are increasingly among us. If you are in an uncommon or non-traditional family, more pointedly, if you are a single parent, if you are a foster or adoptive parent, if you are a blended family, if you are struggling through infertility, if you are unmarried, if you are suffering from some form of abuse, hear me say, we see you. We see you. And it is my aim this morning to encourage and equip all of us to be a solid family of God who meets one another's needs regardless of what they are. So all of that data, we should need a fresh air, a breath of fresh air. And we're going to get that breath of fresh air from the Bible because there is nothing fresher than the Bible. So this is where we go to Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. I'm going to read it, but as I go, I'm going to stop and draw some things out of the text. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to start in verse 23. If you want to to look at it on the screen, you can as well. Let's start together. It says, Now before faith came, we, meaning all of us, church, all of us, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come, and we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters, sons and daughters of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Let's expound on this a little bit. There is neither fertile nor infertile. There is neither traditional nor blended. There is neither married nor single nor victim. For if you are in Christ, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Why start here? What I'm saying specifically is this. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have confessed him as your savior, you have asked him to forgive you of your sins that you cannot atone for on your own, if you are done laboring, living the human life in your own strength, your human identity is a secondary identity. Your primary identity is rooted in Christ. You are an heir of promise, nothing more. That is what matters. Church, you are secure. If you are in Christ, you stand on a firm foundation that will never, ever waver. And that includes all of us, regardless of what family type you are in. No matter what trial or pain exists in your life, God's word in Hebrews 4, it promises you rest. Your eternity is secure. It is assured. So if the future is secure, what we need right now is respite and tools on the road to rest. That's what we're going to provide this morning. Now, I mentioned a lot of people groups. I have done my best to group them all together. This is one sermon. I cannot touch on everything, but I'm going to touch on a lot. So we're going to handle these in observations and encouragements from the counseling table. I'm going to start speaking to a specific people group, and then I'm going to transition to the whole church. So then, my first observations and encouragements from the counseling table are for blended, step, adoptive, and foster families, or those considering becoming one. I often meet with folks who are in these familial situations. I want to start with something that you might find unexpected. Let's start with marriage. Marriage is an institution or an entity that was created by God, not man. Marriage was given by God to us in Genesis 2, and that means God designed the priorities of marriage. Why start here? Because as I meet with couples who are either in or considering becoming blended, step, foster, or adoptive families, or I meet with their kids, which happens on a somewhat regular basis, stress over the priorities of this new family unit is an ongoing stressor. It is a repeated topic that comes up often. Who assigns the priorities of this family? What are the things that they need to focus on? Who forms the baseline for what they do? And what are the distractions? What are the things that rise to the surface as they try and figure and discern these things out? Oftentimes, I find that it's compounded by favoritism from the maybe previous family unit or previous preferences that a person had. Sometimes it's an unhealthy attachment to the past. Other times it's neglect of a child. But one of the things that I see more often than anything else, one of the priorities I quite frankly see suffer, is the priority in one of these marital situations of one's spouse. Neglect of your spouse becomes a somewhat common thing. Now, hear me say, I understand, and as I work with people, I convey to them, this is not usually on purpose. 
I understand that step, blended, foster, adoptive families, you are doing your best to make it work. You're spread thin. There's a lot happening, and there are a lot of dynamics at play. But for the Christian, this is why we must remember that God's priorities always come first. We have a baseline. We have a place to start from, and too often, we forget We get caught up in the reality of what we're doing. We get caught up in the doing of life. We get caught up in the things that have to get done, the places we have to be, the money that has to get uh, attained to put food on the table, and we forget God's greater priorities that provide the backdrop and energy to do those things at all. God gives us priorities for the family unit, and they apply across the board to every family type, including blended, step, adoptive, and foster families. Put precisely, I'll say it this way, your marriage is your first priority. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. Meaning regardless of the dynamics of your home, your marriage is first. Not your children. Not your job. Not what was before. Not the trauma. Not the anything. Those things are important. But this is the age-old story of humanity. Whenever, whenever we deviate from God's design, it introduces difficulty into our lives. Let me say that again because I want your attention on this point. Whenever we deviate from God's design, it introduces difficulty into our lives. We invite it in and it makes our lives extremely difficult. And we have to remember, God will never ask us to do second best. God will only ever ask us to do what is absolutely best for us. So for God to say that marriage must be our first priority when we are married, that matters. And moms and dads, you are the team captains for the team that is your family. Which brings me to my second point. Blended, adoptive, step, and foster families, you need to be a family team. And moms and dads, you are the captains of that team. You're leading the charge. You're setting the pattern. You are showing the next generation. You're showing those in your home how it is that they should think and conduct themselves. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's easier said than done. I grant you that, but hang with me. The dynamics of these people groups certainly are complicated. There is trauma involved. There's brokenness of trust that exists. But by and large, God designed us for connectivity. God did not design us to do life in isolation or be alone. And what happens in these family dynamic situations is people start to isolate themselves. They feel displaced. And when folks feel displaced, they start to think differently about how they should live their life. When individuals feel displaced, they don't quite know where they fit. They don't know how they should act. Strategically creating a team environment as part of your family dynamic where everyone has a role and everyone participates is essential. Well, this passage that I'm about to read, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, is most often associated with marriage. There are general principles that we can derive from it. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift, lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This small proverb is talking about teamwork and relationships. Individuals in isolation, by and large, make for weakness. But there is power, there is security, there is warmth 
There is community found in a team environment, and that is what a family must be. A family must be a team. So moms and dads, after the top priority of your marriage, the very first thing you want to be thinking is, how do we cultivate this team and have everyone be an accountable and involved portion of it? Young men and women, if you are a part of a blended step foster or adoptive family, you are a member of the team. But hear me say, hear me say, I understand you did not ask for this. For whatever reason, I know you didn't create the team. Yet, the folks who are raising you, especially if they are believers, they need you. They need you to work with them and not against them. They need you to be on the team. And if that isn't enough, if that is too hard, let me encourage you with this. If you are a Christian, God calls you to contribute to the team. If nothing else, we never fail in obeying God. Application for families specifically. Be a family that talks, okay? As you're trying to create a team, you must be a family that talks. Have a weekly family meeting commensurate to age where everyone is involved. Create space to ask questions, listen, cry, and plan together. Create the space for hard honesty even if the truth hurts. You cannot grow if you do not know. Number two, have a family plan and schedule with strict boundaries and responsibilities. Ensure everyone has some level of responsibility. Ensure you have balance as much as you can. Avoid favoritism and do not presume your way is right. Create a family plan and schedule as a team. And then finally, create new traditions as a part of your family unit. Doing things the same way you did is probably not wisest. And your new family dynamic needs new traditions. Now for the church, what do, what do we do? If you know a blended step adoptive or foster family, help them prioritize the marriage. Help them be obedient to God. Volunteer to watch their kids. Give them a date night. Don't just give them advice. Help them by giving them the opportunity to be obedient to God and prioritize what God says is the main thing in their marriage and in their family life. Does that make sense? There's a sermon in its entirety here, but we have to keep going. My second, then, observation and encouragement from the counseling table are to single parents. Years ago, a gentleman named Andrew, Andrew Farmer wrote on single parenting, a single parent wrestles every day with a basic identity problem. Am I a single person who has parenting responsibilities, or am I a parent who basically lives, a single per, basically lives in a single person's world? It's tough to be both at the same time. As I've met with single parents, I've found that a lot of the time, while they might not conceive it exactly the way that Andrew Farmer wrote it here, a version of this statement is generally true. Many single parents have an identity crisis. They don't quite know who they are. They struggle with forming who they need to become. And oftentimes, that relates to how it is that they became a single parent at all. Now, make no mistake, single parents understand the mission the mission is raise my kids, teach them to fear the Lord, keep our family as intact as possible, and really on the worst possible days, survive. 
Keep going, and that is true generally for all of us, but single parents have a little bit of a more difficult time with this oftentimes than others. But beyond that, honestly, it can be a bit of a blur and often very discouraging. We find that in Genesis chapter 16 as well, this very experience in the story of Hagar, who is the first single mother that the Bible introduces us to. What happens here is the pillar of Israel, Father Abraham. And his wife, Sarah, called Sariah in the text of Genesis 16, were getting impatient that God had not fulfilled his promise to them of an heir. So in something of an end run around the promise of God, Hagar was used as a surrogate, and she gave birth to a son named Ishmael. And for many reasons, this went very poorly, not the least of which was the terrible treatment of Hagar by Abraham and Sariah. And the result in Genesis 16.6, it tells us that Hagar fled from Abraham and Sariah into the desert. Pregnant and alone, she finds herself there, and the text tells us she cries out to God, unknowing of what to do in her situation. And from this, we get the first bit of encouragement and counsel. I share this very often when I meet with single parents. Single parents, you are seen and cared for by God. God hears you. God sees you. God took care of Hagar. God will take care of you. Psalm 86.5 says, God is the father to the fatherless and protector of widows. Psalm 146.9 says, God watches over the sojourners. He will uphold widows and the fatherless. I could go on, but I'll summarize this way. Single moms and dads, God speaks directly to you in his word. He will take care of you. He says he will. He will. So application for single parents. I have a couple of these, which is why we're going to go closer to that right now. Do not isolate one of the worst things that you can do is remove yourself from community and support systems. Romans 12, much like Galatians 3, reminds us that we are all members of one body in Christ. As a single parent, you are already in a situation where you were having to take on more roles and responsibilities, by and large, than you did before. But God did not design you to be the whole body. Which leads me to point two. Have a precise support system. Those words are very important. Take the time to objectively step back and ask yourself the question, what do I actually need? Do I actually need a meal once a week? Maybe you do. Do I need someone to step in and help me as a surrogate parent? Do I need mentors for my kids? Do I need adult community? Don't just surround yourself with help that isn't helpful. There are a lot of loving, helpful people that are not helpful because they don't know what you need. And they need to know what you need because they want to love you. They want to come alongside you and serve you. But they cannot do that precisely if they don't know what your needs are. My encouragement to you, discern what your needs are, and whether it be a small group through relatives or through other means, pursue the precise structures that you need. It is worth the investment of time it will take to figure out what that is. Number three, stay connected to the church. Now, we as a church, we cannot do everything, but the church can do a lot. Let me reframe this for you. Same thing, but let's just turn it and look at it another way. Kids' ministry on Sunday mornings provides you with an opportunity to connect to God, which you need. 
Wednesday nights, for example, with Awana, Sunday nights with Verge, they create space for other adults to pour into your children and be examples to them in raising them up in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus. We have small groups and various ministries like Steps to provide community and practical steps for you to take forward. And in very difficult cases of financial hardship and other somewhat eclectic needs, we have our benevolence ministry run by the tremendous Stephanie Ward, who if we had time for, we would give a standing ovation to. But we don't, so let's keep going. I mean, she's awesome. She is awesome. We try and do everything we can. We do. We try and do everything we can. So if you have a precise need and we have a means by which we can partner with you, Tell us so we can stay connected to the church. And then fourthly, for your kids, single parents, pursue mentors. For whatever the reason that you have endured this loss, because there are many reasons that this takes place, it has probably created a void that the other parent left. In so much as it is possible, whether through a small group, student ministries, kids ministry, or another way, try and equip your children with Christian mentors who may be able to journey with you with the parenting deficit that probably exists. Application then for the church. What can all of us do? Our job as the church is to pursue single parents. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We can understand religion in this text to mean more than a faith system, but the life-changing force of your and my faith in action. The phrase to visit in the text can be translated to mean look after, meaning this isn't a social call. You're not just going to hang out. The instruction is to in the text is to care deeply for their needs. It means being a mentor to their kids. It means being present and involved. It doesn't mean always having something to say because, quite frankly, it might not get better. But it means the ministry of presence. The reality is many single parents, they're not going to come to you. They want to be self-sufficient. Many don't want to ask for help. Some brave folks might, but by and large, in my experience of meeting with people and walking and journeying with them, they're very gun-shy to ask for help. Pursue them. Ask what their needs are and do it in the way James 1.27 describes. My third observation, then, and encouragement from the counseling table is related to infertility. A little-known portion of Anne's and my story is that we struggled through infertility, infertility treatments, and many of the associated trials for years. When I meet with folks and I talk about this, and as I approach the subject today, I do so with tremendous empathy, like suppressing the emotion right now kind of empathy. And I'm thankful that the Bible is not absent on this subject. In fact, it's filled with examples. I'll mention a few. Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 16, we mentioned them before, they battled infertility for decades. As did their son Isaac and his wife Rebekah for a season, Genesis 25, 21 tells us. We see later in Genesis similar stories with Rachel and Leah as well. Further in history, we have in 1 Samuel 1, 6, the story of Hannah, the eventual mother of the prophet Samuel, was infertile as well. 
I'll come back to these more in a minute. I'm, I want to touch on this one a little bit differently, though, than the two subjects. I want to start by saying this. Infertility as, as, a, as a subject, it is very, very real in the life of our church. It is right now in this room and at our campuses and in those joining us online. It is a real thing in people's lives. There are amazing couples who desire biological children and God in his providence, for whatever reason, has not allowed them to conceive a child. And as I mentioned in the data as I started talking about this, Science has showed us that this is due to both female and male infertility. This is not a cut and dry subject, but the truth is, it never was. But we kind of look at it at times through tunnel vision, and we don't see it for the whole of what it is. There is a universal truth, though, that is evident in every story of infertility, both in the past and right now. Each of the couples who endured infertility in their story, and us right now, God had and has a purpose for infertility. God was and is doing something. The couples didn't know, some ever, some for many years, but we can be encouraged that the Bible tells us. With Abraham and Sarah, with Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, it was to make abundantly clear that God always keeps his promises. But he does so at the right time to establish a specific act that God promised would come to fruition, but he establishes it through his faithfulness and intimate involvement in his plans. God does not allow anything to ever happen by human means alone. God is always involved. Another thing we see is in the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and much could be said about this, but what we see pointedly through the story of Hannah is the power of prayer. It was in prayer that God responded to Hannah, and after that, only then, did she conceive. The point is, infertility always had a purpose. None of those examples were discipline. None of those examples were God smiting someone. They were simply purposeful. But we get lost sometimes in our own stories. We get lost in our own pain, and we start to tell ourselves things that are not always true. I must have done something wrong. God must be angry at me. None of the examples that we have are God disciplining. But what we do have is God's faithfulness at the right time, in the right ways, in the right season. God was doing something then, and if you are struggling right now, God is doing something now, which begs a few things for us to consider. First, pray that God gives you the strength to rest in his plan. It's hard to know, much like our biblical ancestors, what God is always doing. We are not always going to know God's purposes in the time they are taking place. The fight then is to root ourselves in God's bigger story and see ourselves as participants in God's story and not just our own. Part of how you do this is you point your affections, you point your anger, you point everything that you are feeling at God. God welcomes it and he receives it. In counseling, I take people to Psalm 27. In Psalm 27, King David is writing in the midst of great adversity, in the midst of great sorrow. 
He's writing, asking, and even confessing confidence in God, asking God to continue to root him in himself. David is pouring out his heart, asking for mercy and strength, repeatedly asking God to ensure he stays on the right path because, quite frankly, David knew he couldn't do it on his own. David knew he needed God's help to even stay rooted in the right path. Despite, despite what David shows here as clear feelings of abandonment, he expresses confidence in God and asks for the continued strength to endure. If you are battling infertility this morning, while the circumstances are different, the application is for you. Psalm 27 is for you. Number two, don't stop living while you wait. Now this, this is difficult. But the goal is to remember that there is more to life than having biological children. It is difficult to not become nearsighted and narrowly focus only on this. We must fight to remember that while children are a gift from God, they are not the only gift from God. There are many gifts from God, and you have been gifted to do something in some way. I asked a friend of mine about their experience with this. This is what they said. Do not allow infertility to pause or get in the way of what the Lord has done or is doing for you today. I spent a lot of time just waiting for something that hasn't come over the years. It's really easy to miss the beauty and opportunities that are currently around you when you have your focus fixed on what you do not have. Pursue what God would have you do in the waiting. Pursue what God wants you to see, the beauty of God in the waiting. I'm not going to presume to tell you what that is. I don't know your story, but I remember mine. I remember what I had to focus on, and I remember how hard it was. And yet God's purposes are always for our good in some way. God has a purpose in this for you, and you must fight to rest in your faith and not in your circumstances. Don't make every sexual engagement a baby-making engagement. Pursue life-giving things that communicate to your spouse areas of joy. Finally, consider adoption and foster care. There are amazing children all over the world that need you. And maybe, maybe, that's what God is trying to communicate to you today. Maybe that's the thing that you need to consider. We have a tremendous foster and adoption ministry that has started over the last few years here at our church. I think there are, it's, like, it's almost like a super small group. There are almost 40 couples in this group. And if you're thinking, boy, maybe that's for me. Maybe my heart is stirred. Maybe, maybe we're just there. Email me. I'll put you in touch with that group. And we'll get you connected in thinking about that. Application for the church, specifically. Do not ask every couple you see when they are having children. Do not ask every couple when they are having children. For some, that is an impossible question to answer. They want kids. But because of the pain of this, it takes days, hours, sometimes days to recover. There are a lot of other things to ask couples about. Ask about something else. And then if we're going to follow the example of 1 Samuel 1, 
pray for and pray with those struggling with infertility. If you know someone struggling or battling through this, because sometimes it is just that, it is a battle, one of the most encouraging things you can do is prioritize them through prayer. Pray that they root themselves in God's larger story. Pray for confidence in God's plan for them. Pray for the strength to endure in the face of the unknown. And pray for comfort. Prayer is not trivial. It is essential. Prayer was the difference maker in Hannah's story, and it might be the difference maker in yours or theirs, too. Be prayer warriors for and with those who are struggling. My final observation and encouragement then from the counseling table is related to communication. So this will be a little bit different than all the others that come, but it's reflective of something that I see on an increasingly regular basis. But before I talk about communication, I want to say something very important. I love you. I love you enough to talk about hard things. Our church loves you enough to talk about to talk about hard things. The type of communication that we are going to uh, unpack should be uncommon. And it is increasingly becoming common. It's not just any form of communication I want to address. It's a specific form. The Bible calls it reviling. Reviling is mentioned in Scripture dozens of times, depending on your exact translation of the Bible, as some versions use other similar words to convey a similar point. Often when it is listed, it is associated with some of the most grievous sin that people are corrected for. Take what Paul says, correcting the Corinthian church. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The whole point of this section in 1 Corinthians is Paul noting the sin that the Corinthians did before when they were unbelievers that should have stopped and to some degree had not stopped. And what he is saying very pointedly and very specifically is Christians do not do those things. Christians don't revile. So what is reviling? What is this form of communication that is reflective of an unbeliever that Paul sees fit to put it in here? Let's define it this way. A reviler is those who speak in an insulting manner, to assail with contemptuous language, to utter bitter complaint or denunciation. Meaning, if you use words in an unkind, insulting, putting down bitter or complaining way, you are reviling. And Paul says, you are acting like a non-Christian. Why am I bringing this up? Because between 60 and 70% of the counseling that I do is marriage counseling. And in too much of it, I am talking to couples every single week who put one another down as part of their normal communication. 
They regularly speak unkindly to each other. They are regularly hateful. They are regularly, unnecessarily critical. They're passive-aggressive, insulting, complaining, and sometimes downright hurtful. They're a Christian